Hello and welcome to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. I am your host, Chris Wakaluk, and I'll be sitting down in conversations with current Pender Island residents to hear the stories that brought them to this hippie little island we live on, and to also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Today, I will be speaking with Steve Wright. Now, if you know Steve like I know Steve, then you're going to know him as that guy who was a contractor on the island for many, many years. Well, we're going to get to hear Steve talk about his experiences with that, along with You guessed it, many other things. We're going to get to hear Steve talk about what it was like growing up on Vancouver Island in a couple different communities there. He'll share stories about what it was like being a young boy and a teenager living on Vancouver Island. Steve will also talk about his experiences in his 20s, hitchhiking throughout different locations in North America. Steve will also talk about travel experiences he had in more recent years, which involved high elevation hiking and climbing trips. As well as Steve will also talk about how he's seen the island change in his 40 years while being on Pender Island. All that and a lot more in a pretty amazing interview I got to have with him. And, you know, I don't know if I say this all the time or too often, but I'm just so pleased to get a chance to do this because it really is so amazing to get to spend this time with people that I don't really know very well sometimes. And then to get to sit down and ask people questions and to hear some of the answers. Anyway, I was so blown away with a lot of the personal reflections and storytelling that Steve had in this. And I'm pretty sure you're going to dig it too. So anyway, that's it for that. We'll see you guys on the other side. And without further ado, here's my interview with Steve Wright. Are you feeling ready to start? Oh, sure. All right. Well, this is where I say welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks. Okay. Well, here we are on a uh, Wednesday afternoon. It's uh, just after one o'clock. It's crazy windy out today. Tis that. Indeed. You made your way here. You said that there was a fallen tree, powers down certain parts of the island. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, we're, we're getting into winter now. I feel more comfortable. <laughs> really? Knowing what's ahead of us. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So no we, surprises. No surprises. It's the, yeah. the the tester, the tester day for us. I, I'm looking out the window. I can see like a cedar tree blowing in the wind, and uh, it's making me nervous. The power is going to go out. But anyway, actually, how was your how was your morning so far? Morning was good. Uh, I don't think I did very much at all. I'm sorting out through a bunch of stuff that I have left over from my folks estate and my aunt's estate so i'm just trying to clear out stuff and figure out where it's going to go and where i'm going to get rid of it all so it's it's amazing that all the stuff that we collect is all junk if there's no emotional attachment to it so i kind of pick up these pieces and i look at them and i say well this is just junk oh but then my mom had that one and suddenly it's not junk anymore there's there's a connection to it mm. and then it's more difficult to sort of toss it aside so Try and find a good home for it. Somebody else can use it and appreciate it as much as she did. What was the last thing that uh, you chose to hang on to? Uh, actually, I don't hang on to very much, but I uh, because I'm trying to declutter. Uh, I have so much stuff after 40 years of living on Pender, and I brought so much of it with me that I still, unfortunately, still hang on to. But I'm trying to get rid of of the bigger pieces. So I'm kind of like yesterday we went through a bunch of crystal glasses. I was going to take them to New to You and see if, uh, if if anybody in the family wanted to hang on to them. And then I opened up a box and there was my 
father's scotch glasses, beautiful glasses with a decanter, the whole kit and caboodle. And it brought back a memory of me sitting down with my dad having a glass of scotch on a regular basis. And so I decided that uh, that's going nowhere. Yeah, for sure. That's a good one to hang on to. Cool. Well, yeah. All right. So it sounds like a bit of a bit of a thoughtful, emotional morning a little bit, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Just memories, memories, good memories of my family. Nice. Cool. All right. Well, let's let's uh, go from there to uh, go to the first question that I get to on the podcast. And you mentioned 40 years on Pender Island. What brought you to Pender Island? Well, I was uh, we were in Victoria. And uh, I decided then that I did not enjoy living in an urban setting. It was expensive. I didn't take advantage of many of the amenities and services that were there. I've always liked to be in a quieter place. I'm not a real huge fan of crowds or people. We're just looking for a quieter place to live, a place that I could afford to buy a piece of property and build a house. So we started looking at all the Gulf Islands. The woman I was with at the time, she had an uncle from California who lived on North Pender. So we came over to North Pender to look at it and drove around North Pender. And then on the way to the ferry, decided we'd take a turn to the right and head down across the bridge to South Pender. And I got to the end of Gallon Point Road and I just said, this is a place I want to live. And strangely enough, on the way to the ferry, we stopped in to see Mark Keating at uh, Pender Realty. And she told me that there was no places to rent. There was nothing to do for someone my age. I didn't know that her son-in-law was the the only contractor on the island. So she, I guess maybe she didn't want any competition there. But she, she gave us a fairly honest appraisal of the place and suggested that we look elsewhere. But a week after I was home, I got a call from a fellow out in Canoe Bay or Canoe Cove uh, by the ferry terminal to renovate his basement. And in my conversation with him about the job, they'd said they'd just come there. And strangely enough, they had a place, they just left South Pender. And they offered the place to me. And it was less than a kilometer away from the end of Gallon Point Road. And so when I completed that job, we moved over lock, stock, and barrel and lived in that place and started looking for property. Okay. So... When you said that you went to the end of Gallon Road on that first drive and and then something tickled your imagination about it uh, to put words in your mouth, but what exactly was it about the place that really got you? Uh, those things are kind of undefinable. It's just a feeling you get. Uh, it's It was just the looking out across the water, just looking at the coastline. Um, there weren't too many people there at that time. There weren't many, many houses, too many driveways, so it was a nice road all the way down there. I just like the feel of it. I like the sense of it. I, I can't describe it any more than that. It just felt good. So okay, that was the spot. That was okay. the spot. I was okay. home. All right. Okay. So that's the spot. And then what? What happened in the first number of years where you're living on the South Island and deciding to live on Pender in the early '80s? At that time, I was the youngest person living on South Pender. My wife and and. Uh, she had a three-year-old son, and so we rented there for at least a year, and we met some of the older people that lived on South Pender, and they were of a huge help to a young family. They gave us good advice. They helped us. If we were in tough times, there was uh, always somebody there to call and to help you out, welcomed you into their house, fed us, did everything to support us, and uh convincing us that we should stay there. And then uh, I, ca- I met an elder lady, Vicki Gillespie, and she owned quite a bit of property 
down along the uh, Craddock Drive, Southlands area. And after doing a number of jobs for her, she asked me if I'd like to buy one of her pieces of property. And back then you couldn't get a mortgage on any land on the Gulf Islands. And the only amount of money I had was uh, what I'd brought over with me, which I think was around $20,000. And her lots were going for $69,000, $70,000 for two acres. So she brought the price down so that I could utilize my $20,000 as a deposit. And fortunately for me, my father was a teacher, and he organized uh, a mortgage through the teacher's co-op. So I got the extra thirty grand through them, bought the property, and then started working on it and borrowed another $5,000 from my dad to build our cottage and workshop, which we lived in. And then I just worked. I started work with uh, Sailor's Construction and paid it off as soon as possible. And then in 1990, we started building our larger home on the property, and that took five years. Okay. So you started up building a smaller home at first, and then that led into building your next home. And actually, we, we, we talked about this about a week ago when you first got together, and you mentioned how it's changed, that we're getting a mortgage on a raw piece of land is no longer the case anymore. And you, you felt like you know, it was fortunate that you were able to be able to have an opportunity to buy a raw piece of land and get the opportunity to do that where that doesn't exist now. Well, there's a number of things that, that don't exist anymore. One thing was uh, the building regulations were much more relaxed. Uh, the second thing was there was nobody in your way to tell you that you couldn't actually mill the lumber that was on your property. And there's no regulations with using secondhand materials as there are today. So uh, the cottage was built primarily from stuff that I'd pulled out of renovations, doing work um, that people gave me. The home I built was all milled right off the property from the logs. Um, it's a timber frame. So you're allowed to build your own home, which you're not allowed to do anymore either uh, without taking some course. So I think um, a lot of the conditions were different, that you could take your time, build far less expensively than it takes now, and you're a lot freer to do what you wanted to do than you are now. And that makes a huge difference for a young family. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I definitely want to get back into that because I think the differences between then and now is something I really like going into for historical purposes because I hope people will be listening to this in the future. And I think it's really amazing to get to hear how things have changed. So not necessarily just in the present, but certainly in the future as well, too. People can have a bit of a concept as to how things have changed and deciding what's better or worse. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. we just make assumptions that how things were in the past is just outdated and not as good as they are now but uh yeah I, I certainly like hearing stories when people talk about uh i think i think things were better back in the day yeah and i i think that's probably because as as you get older uh you tend to miss what what you knew back then um i certainly think life was a lot simpler there wasn't as many fears or anxieties that i can recall even as a child we were raised in a neighborhood and so we were free to run up and down the street without any concern of damage or injury or some other evil intent coming across us. We were free to run through the bush without people being afraid that we'd never come back. So I, I, wasn't, I wasn't raised with fear in my heart, and it was never imposed on me by my parents. If we got up in the morning, my mom would give us breakfast, and out the door we went, and 
if we weren't home at lunch, then we were having lunch at somebody else's house down the street. Nobody worried about it. So I think, I think when I look back and, and see my childhood, I realize really quite how fortunate I am, particularly when I look at the life of my grandchildren, because my boys have kids living in Vancouver, and they certainly don't have the, the freedoms or the carefree existence that, that I had when I was a kid. Yeah, it's, it seems as if there's a low-grade anxiety that kids have passed down to them from their parents about being nervous and questioning absolutely everything and everybody is a, it's like a super broad brush and assumption that I'm painting this situation with. But this is something that I've heard time and time again from people about like, yeah, it was, uh, it was way different when I was a kid. Yeah, and, and, and that's true here too, because even when I came to Sales Pender, it didn't take very long to get to know everybody. And that started to change within 10, 15 years, 20 years. I can remember the last time I was on a ferry that I, I ran into Earl Hastings. And he came over to me and said, I'm glad you're on board because I don't know anybody else here. And that struck me as rather odd because Earl knew everybody. Wow. So that's, uh, I recall that as a, as a time when I first noticed there was a lot of people coming back and forth to Pender Island that I did not know. Okay. So you'd say that uh, transitioning from the early 80s into about the 2000s, things started to shift around that point where there was more people living on uh, on Pender. And yeah, I think in part of that was because the economy was probably doing better. Uh, so more people could afford property over here. People originally, at least uh, from my experience, would come to the island because they wanted to live here. And certainly we're far more resilient and capable of living here. And I don't want to be disrespectful to, to newcomers or or to put words um, in their mouths, but I think more people come here because they can afford to come here. They can afford a second home or plan for their um, retirement over here. But certainly the houses are, are getting larger. They're getting more complex. People, the new owners, are I find in many cases are not as resilient are not as uh, self-reliant in looking after their own home so they're always looking for someone to do it for them and that has a it has an effect on on a small community because you start dealing with people that don't live here rather than spending your time working with people that do live here and therefore it's a little more difficult to knit a community together and when those changes happen in a small community, it takes, a little, I think, a longer time for a small community to adapt to those changes. And also the expectations of people coming from an urban center that come to a rural community, their expectations are different. So it's not as if it's their fault. They simply are up against something they don't recognize and don't know how to adapt to or, or don't know their way around. And we're the same. In a rural community, we don't really know how or feel comfortable with adapting to an urban environment. So there's, uh, a, I won't say conflict, but there's, there's a bit of grading going on back and forth there. And it takes time um, for people to relax and get to know each other to break down those barriers, if, if, if they are barriers at all. I super appreciate you uh, speaking about that and putting that so eloquently because I've never really heard anybody express it like that before, but that makes a lot of sense what you just said there actually, right? That, Whatever I just said. Well, no, because <laughs> no, I, I, hear you. I, I moved here briefly in 2006 and then came back to live here in uh, 2010, bought a house and then 
been here pretty much ever since. So I've only known it essentially like a little bit from the mid 2000s, but mostly from 2010 on. But for you to describe the uh, the situation that it existed from the time that you were here in the 80s till before I even got here and and uh, how you put it so eloquently, I think that really sums up quite well as to how the island is shifting and evolving. Yeah, I think the last uh, survey that was done by the trust recently showed that 54%, I think it was something like that, of people wanted the island to stay the same. But nobody really defined what that same <laughs> referred to. Sure. Because what was same in 1980 and what was same in 1990, what is the same in 2000 are completely different concepts. Yeah, definitely. And actually, I, I just want to... Uh, if you're able to just give a little more clarification about what you mean specifically about how people were more resilient in terms of taking care of themselves, in terms of food or building or those things and everything else. Like, how did you see people being more resilient from the first time you uh, you moved to Pender versus now? Well, there's uh, as far as food is concerned, virtually everybody had a garden and everybody had a freezer and everybody went fishing. Uh, there's a l number of people that went hunting every year. And that food was generally moved around from doorway to doorway. If Ken went fishing by the afternoon, people in the neighborhood had a slab of lingcod delivered to their door. If John had too many vegetables in his garden, then it was passed on to other people. Um, but people that did come, they pretty much if they didn't build their own home, and most of them had, then certainly they participated in it. Certainly they had some idea of how the house went together and how to maintain it, how to look after it. People needed firewood, they went out and got their firewood. So if there was, um, which we maybe experience this very shortly now, if there was a down power line, people knew that if it wasn't jumping all over the road sparking like crazy, then the power was dead. So we couldn't wait for a fire department because there really wasn't one. We couldn't wait for the police to block off the road because there really weren't any police here. So um, somebody would show up with a chainsaw and people would just show up at the spot and move it off the road and, and life would con continue. So we, we kind of were reliant upon ourselves to deal with the day-to-day -day activities of getting through the day. That's great. That's uh, it's great to know that that's how it was, and uh, it it actually boggles my mind a little bit to hear you know that uh, hydro story that you just described there. But what else are you gonna do? Yeah, you're gonna. There's no point waiting for hydro because hydro had the old Thunderbird, and they were in Ganges, and they had to deal with Ganges, and nobody was really interested in coming down to South Pender to serve less than uh, seventy five people. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Well, that's cool. I really like uh, you giving some uh, some framing and some perspective as to what things were like back in the day. I'm going to come back to Pender in a little bit here, or maybe a long bit, but I, I want to go back into uh, your history. You talked a little bit about being a kid growing up. Where did you grow up? I was born in uh, Port Alberni in 1948, not so long ago. <laughs> and uh, it was... Uh, there was two. There was Alberni, which is the town, and then Port Alberni was where the mills were. So I was kind of born with the smell of pulp mills in my nostrils. But uh, my father was in the military back then, coming back from the war. He went back to university to get a teaching certificate. And the reason uh, they moved to Port Alberni is because they got a bonus for living in sort of the outback. 
And that was you know, pretty important because I don't think he, I think if I remember correctly, he was making 1200 a year as a teacher. Uh, we certainly weren't well off, but we did um, have a little house in Alberni, and then we moved to Port Alberni to 4th Avenue. It was a, all, they were all small cottages. They weren't houses back then. They were more like cottages. They weren't very large. I, ha- I have two brothers, an older and a younger brother, and so we were all packed into one bedroom. And uh, we had a backyard. Everything was great. A little picket fence going around the joint. And um, everybody knew everybody. And I think that was probably because uh, at that time, most women were housewives. They raised their family. And that, as they are wont to do, they build a sense of community in the neighborhood. So we had a wonderful community that everybody knew everybody. So with that, as a backdrop, there was a sense that we could go anywhere and do whatever we wanted. So I experienced freedom of movement and freedom from care right from the get-go. And we were fortunate that at the end of our block was a large wetland, which we used to call a swamp, and uh, went by the name of Lopsy Cupsy. And it had a uh, sort of a slow-moving creek that ran through it that we used to jump on these war- large, wide planks and pull our way around uh, in search of muskrats, uh, kind of like the old Tom Sawyer and um, who's his, his pal, Tom Sawyer and... Uh, wait, wait, Huck Finn? Is that Huck a, Finn, yeah. there you go, and right. Huck Finn. So we used to do that, and we spent the whole days in the bush building forts or chasing, making trails and, and running around or, or sneaking up and spying on the tramps and hobos that used to camp out by the railroad tracks. So that was that was our entertainment. Or we'd hop on our bikes when we were old enough to ride a bike. We'd just throw on an old frying pan and um, and a fishing rod and, and ride down to Alberni up to Rogers Creek and fish for rainbow trout and fry them up in the morning and camp out right there. And it was just a great life. We are just a bunch of little ruffian kids that got along with everybody. And, and if we didn't, then we'd have a decent rock fight and uh, get it over with and carry on. Otherwise, it was, it was just playtime the whole time it was really a wonderful time right on a decent rock fight (laughs) (laughs) yeah well every time once in a while i I, it's sort of hard for me to even think about now but if we got into an argument we just sort of split into parties and we get these piles of rocks and we'd start hucking them at each other and our aim was as bad as our distance but if by fluke we would hit somebody and they would collapse screaming and in pain or bleeding um, everything would stop. Sure. And we'd all go on, how are you doing? Are you okay? And, and then everybody would be pals. But it was one of our strange little growing up activities that we seem to have gone through. And everybody seemed to be okay with it. Yeah. Just blowing off some steam. And as soon as uh, <laughs> things, things got real, okay, time to stop this. We actually really do care about each other. We're friends here. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you, you have super fun memories about being a kid growing up on mm-hmm. Vancouver Island. So, where did things go from uh, from being a kid, uh, child, to being a teenager and uh, beyond? Well, my father got transferred to Nanaimo in 58, and uh, I was 10 years old. So, I remember the drive in the 47 Plymouth with my brothers, and all three of us were in tears for the whole trip because we just left all our best friends behind. And uh, Nanaimo was, a, was an odd place, and it was another mill town, of course, with Harmac. A lot of bars, um, and it was uh, fishermen and loggers as well. So it wasn't, it wasn't the type of town that was much different, but certainly the neighborhood that I moved into was different. We were newcomers then. So there was some animosities and disagreements with 
some of the kids that had lived there before. I've often said that Nanaimo is where I, I learned how to drink and fight. It was a pretty rough town. It's also because we were, we were getting into the 50s. Um, there, is, there is more gang sort of group activity where people would get together and they'd, they'd wear their uh, sharp little black polished shoes and tight white jeans or tight black jeans and comb their hair in waterfalls and ducktails and stuff like that. So if you weren't part of the group, you had to stay away from that group because they would just jump you and beat you up. And so I I got beat up quite a bit. I was teased because my father was a teacher uh, there. So when I actually went into high school, I used to get punched out on a regular basis. If my father had given some kid a detention, I'd walk out of school and get plowed in the nose. And so uh, it wasn't uh, a particularly friendly, fond place that I recall in Nanaimo. Um, and as soon as I could uh, get out of grade 12, I got the hell out of Nanaimo. Wow. So from your personal recollection, would you say Nanaimo was a slightly more violent, dangerous place than other cities on Vancouver Island at that time? Or Well, I couldn't say. We did uh, Duncan, I don't think, was much difference. We used to have this real competition going on with Duncan, either in race cars or in fights. Uh, the Friday night special would be going down to Duncan and race cars, and then at some point a fight would break out. Lady Smith was uh, was not unlike that, other than it was much smaller. And uh, because we were a little closer, we probably knew more kids in Lady Smith than we did in Duncan. So we had more friends in Lady Smith than Duncan. But it was certainly a time of uh, the most important thing in, in your life was to get a driver's license in a car. And then the next thing to do is be to soup it up and, and go out to the quarter mile and race it. So that's what we did. What was your first car? My first car was a Caliente, a Comet Caliente. Whoa, describe that. Uh, well, that pretty much <laughs> pretty much describes it. It was a pretty boring car. I did step it up, though, to, uh, to a Barracuda, the Fastback Barracuda. That was, uh, that was pretty spiffy back then. That sounds way cooler. It was cooler. And uh, I tried to get that uh, souped up into a racing stock, but uh, my father put his foot down and put an end to that dream. Really? Yeah. So a friend of mine had a, uh, had a Camaro. Um, so we, uh, we used to go down to, um, Washington State or over to Mission Speedway and we used to race that all the time. Quarter mile. Cool. B stock. Pretty you, quick car. So you would take turns racing it or he would race it or? No, I just went with him and helped him, uh, with the mechanics part of it when I broke down and haul it back. He, he was the driver. He owned the car. So there's just no way I was getting behind the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> that was not cool. That's funny. I remember actually a friend of mine, uh, he raced his Camaro for years. And I remember going to watch him race one time. And I, I got in the passenger seat after the uh, the race was over. And you know, it was it was hilarious. It was couldn't believe just how fast we were going. And his skill behind the wheel as well, mm -hmm. too. Because when you watch from a distance, you're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, whatever. But it was pretty cool experience to be in the seat of the car and be like, oh, wow, you're actually really good at this. Yeah. And 50 <laughs> miles an hour was really fast back then. <laughs> <laughs> it's still fast now in school yeah. zones but yeah. uh, so you said that uh, as soon as you could uh, get out of Nanaimo you did so I think it sounds pretty clear why you wanted to get out of Nanaimo but um, what happened to get you out of Nanaimo how did that all unfold well 62 63 64 were pretty important years on uh, for teenagers when the Beatles the Rolling Stones and, and music erupted there was certainly elvis presley and he was he was bringing in some different stuff but 
it didn't quite grab everybody like the Beatles did. And it's not as if the Beatles, I would define as rock and roll, because a lot of their stuff was kind of pablum stuff. It was nighttime little sing songs for to put kids asleep. It seemed. Uh, Rolling Stones were something a little different. They were a little raw, a little crisper. But what it did do was that it opened a door. It simply allowed kids that were stuck in a mill town with the expectations they were going to get out of school, get a job at the mill, live in a trailer park somewhere, and drink beer on Friday, Saturday nights. When they, when they came out, it was just a different sound, a different dress, different hairstyle, and all it really did was create some excitement because there was something different. There was an option. You could do something different. And that really appealed to me. So uh, at that point, I guess in 66, I decided that I wasn't going to cut my hair anymore. And my hair was not very long at that time. It was just starting to hit the top of my ears, but that was still considered, strangely enough, uh, long back then. And the longer it got, the more attention it attracted. And, of course, that also took the form of discrimination, and you'd get beat up on the street for having long hair by some guy with a crew cut. Uh, so that, that sort of helped me push me to get the hell out of Dodge. Then I decided at that time when I, I lost my job because of my hair length, I decided to go to Europe. And so I, I went over with a friend of mine and we, we did some traveling around in Europe, which kind of opened my eyes even more. And then when I came back, I started hitchhiking. So I would just uh, stick my thumb out and go wherever the road, the, the ride took me. And that took me across Canada. It took me down through the U.S. to California on a number of occasions. It took me right across the United States until I bumped into the Atlantic Ocean. It took me all the way south and circumnavigated Mexico. And hitchhiking was, hitchhiking was a life. It wasn't a lifestyle. It was a life. We just, we spent our time on the road and it was, it was safe. It was exciting. We met so many other people, and if you had long hair, then anybody with long hair would stop and give you a ride. And if you were going any great distance, then they would take you home and feed you and give you a place to stay. Um, and you could stay as long as you like. So um, that was a big part of my life. I would work perhaps six months to get enough money so I could travel for six months. And I did that probably all the way through my 20s. Wow, really? Yeah. Whoa. Good chunk of it. Um I did take some time out to, to take a boat building apprenticeship in Vancouver. Um, and I uh, ran into a bunch of friends and spent a lot of time on the mud flats out in North Vancouver in the, in the heyday of the, the hippie movement back then. That was good times. Met a lot of great people. And we did, uh, because of the boat building experience, it, it gave me a chance to, to cruise up and down the, the British Columbia coast up to Bella Coola and back a couple times. So I knew the coast, was getting to know the coast fairly well. And then uh, through one experience or another, I ended up in San Diego for a couple of years, and then I came back to British Columbia. And from there on, I, I headed over to, um, uh, to to South Bender Island. Okay. Well, we're going to take our time getting to South Bender Island here because okay. there's <laughs> so many different things I want to talk about here. Well, I guess first of all is that all that hitchhiking through North America, that's super cool. I didn't know that. And so what parts of North America really enchanted you? Areas where you first went to and you thought, oh, wow, this place is amazing. Oregon, 
and California. They yep. were they were the best. It was a, a great lifestyle, good people. The further east you went, the more conservative they got. I know the first time I was stuck on a road in New Mexico, this large Cadillac came along with a large man driving it. And when I opened the door, I, I was staring down the barrel of a gun. And he just looked at me and said, just remember I got the draw on you, son. Now where are you off to? And he tucked the gun in between his legs and I got in the car and we had a great conversation all the way through New Mexico. And uh, that happened on a regular basis where they just show you the gun, let you know that they had the draw. And as long as, long as you didn't make any fast moves, you're safe. Wow. And so we got that. I did spend one night under a turnpike in Dallas and woke up, uh, got out on the, on the highway and stuck my thumb out. And there was a, like a turnaround. A car came around the corner and the tires are squealing. That's what caught my attention. He was leaning out the window and I thought he was giving me the peace sign. So I gave him the peace sign back and then heard this ricochet and I realized the guy was shooting at me and the bullets were hitting the concrete behind me. And um, there's only two shots. But what struck me odd was first off, the guy was shooting at me. And the second thing was that I didn't clue in. Like I, it was so, it was so alien. I just stood there staring at him in disbelief, thinking, "What the hell is he doing? Why is he shooting at me?" Sure. It, well, you'd have thought out a duck, but I didn't. Well, I, I, having never experienced something like that before, I think it takes just a few seconds for your mind to catch up with that to really understand what's happening. Yeah, strange. Um, so then I went south, <laughs> <laughs> and my next road, my next uh, trip took me to Brownsville, Texas, and then I crossed the border into Mexico and got right down to Veracruz and. Started around Mexico from there. Okay. And, you know, just to go back just a little bit further as well, too, before mm -hmm. the hitchhiking began, because I, I really think this is important. I want to touch on this is that you mentioned the word discrimination when it came to having long hair. And we talked about this last week, and I was really blown away with some of the things that you told me about what it was like to be a young person, especially a young man growing his hair out long in the 60s, and what sort of a reaction that you would have potentially and uh, not just potentially but certainly it sounded like in uh, in particular situations and i think it's really important for people to hear this because i was really unaware at uh, how big of a deal it was for people to grow their hair out and what that meant and what the repercussions were and i don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit more but what was that like in nanaimo to start off with well, it was it was certainly tough in Nanaimo, which is kind of why I got out of it. But uh, there was a group of us um, that lived on a commune out in Lance, uh, Lanceville, and there was another commune out in the Noose Bay. But the only thing, I suppose, other than the alternative lifestyle that we we kind of looked for, because we it was anti-establishment, it was anti-authority, that whole sort of scene. But we were looking looking for an alternative way to live in a more free, easy more enjoyable, less stressful, without, I think the, the phrase we used, we wanted to um, work to live and not live to work. And so we wanted to enjoy and explore life and what that meant to us more than we wanted to settle down into a career. For instance, in, when I was 13 in grade 8, I was called into the counselor's office at junior high and I was asked one question, do I want to go in the university program or the general program? And when I asked them what that meant, I was told 
I could either be a doctor or a lawyer in the university program, or I could go in the general program and be a ditch digger. So I didn't necessarily want to be a ditch digger, but I did go into the general program and did a lot of the shops, uh, woodworking, metalworking, and that sort of stuff, which has pretty much given me a, a career for the rest of my life because I, I've been constructing either furniture or cabinetry or houses or boats or something I've been building all my life. So we were kind of looking for a few more opportunities than, than a university program or a general program. But you did run into people that completely disagreed with you. They disagreed with what we were doing. They disagreed with, with how we were living. They, were, they disagreed with how we looked. And for someone growing up in a white community, which is a generally a, a, a very privileged group of people, of which we believe we were still a part of, we just happened to have our longer hair and a beard, that was a bit of a shock. It was uh, something that, an experience that I don't know if anybody ever kind of gets over because you, you hear about discrimination, you hear about prejudice, but we are immune to it because we are the privileged white class. And so when it starts happening to us personally, simply for the sake of length of hair, it's, it's a little unsettling to say the least. And when it's followed by um, violence, it's... Um, it never, it never leaves you. So I, uh, I really uh, appreciate the fact that there were so many people that were prepared to put up with all that to make the statement. And as Graham Nash said, I think I mentioned this to you earlier, the song Crosby, Tills, and Nash said, I almost cut my hair, but I didn't. I wanted to let my freak flag fly. And that pretty much captures it because it was our flag. It was, it was simply a symbol that let everybody know that if you had long hair, you had gone through all that and you were still prepared to put up with it because you believed in the philosophy of being a hippie or having an alternative life. And it, I suppose it all sounds corny now, but back then it was pretty realistic and it was obviously um, considered the same because millions of kids had long hair back then. And it was a good life. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing. And, you know, just as you were talking, I was I was thinking about, I was just reading the book yesterday that I was telling you about. And in uh, in a section of it, the author was talking about growing up in East London and avoiding a, a gang of young men who were chasing him down and going to beat him up. And he just talked about hiding in a garbage can for 20 minutes and hiding amongst the banana peels and the yogurt containers, he said, for 20 minutes, probably saved him a week in the hospital. And when you talked about getting beaten up, you know, I don't want to gloss that over because it's uh, it's not something to be glossed over. I was attacked by five guys once. That was the only time I've ever been beaten up. And it's totally stuck with me my whole life. Mm-hmm. It sucks. It's it, like, what an awful, uh, demoralizing, humiliating crappy experience you know and that i i think that from what you're saying it sounds like you endured some violence very unjustified numerous times in your life yeah and um as as the movement evolved and and it became more politicalized uh where people were starting to protest virtually about everything but certainly the vietnam war ventured pretty strongly in our minds um and started taking over the majority of the marches um, along with nuclear warfare and Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. As the environmental movement grew and all that sort of stuff, the pressure from the establishment, from the authorities, became a little heavier. 
a lot of the drugs back then that were being used were still legal. LSD was legal up until they probably in the late 60s, maybe 70s, I suppose, and had some prominent speakspersons for that, uh, such as Timothy Leary that everybody's heard about, Ram Dass and a bunch of other people. So uh, when that started getting involved, then it allowed uh, the government and the police a target. And so they utilized that to start breaking up the movement. And one of the, the uh, most successful ways that they did that was by having undercover agents. So that when you're sitting around with strangers and a joint was going around, if the guy had long hair, you could trust him. When the narcs came in undercover, you'd pass a joint, and the next day or two days later, you'd be arrested for, for trafficking. And so that started creating distrust within the movement. And so when that started happening, then the word sort of evolved and went around and said, all right, we can't beat the establishment, but what we can do is we cannot support it. So go back to the land, go live off the land. And so that homesteading movement began. And uh, it seemed to make a lot of sense to me. And I was having some uh, not very happy experiences in my life at the time, which was in the, in the early, probably 1970, 71, 72, I packed up and went up to north, uh, west of Williams Lake, up to the Chilcotin area, uh, and had a homesteading lease of a quarter section, 160 acres up there, which I started working at. And um, was fortunate enough to live with uh, on a ranch with an old fellow named Tex Hansen had been up there since the 30s. He went up on a freight train in uh, the dirty 30s and uh, had a quarter section on Clearwater Lake. And so I worked with him, and he taught me how to trap, how to hunt, how to do everything. He was probably as much of a father figure to me um, as my own biological father was. He was a wonderful man. But even there, uh, I didn't dare go up to a place such as Anaheim Lake, which is 40 miles north of us, because the hippies that had got caught up there were generally grabbed by cowboys by the hair and dragged down to the corrals um, on horseback and uh, scalped, or not scalped, but had their heads and their hair cut off with, with hunting knives. No way. So it was pretty brutal. And then there was, there, I ran into a situation that had enough potential violence in it that I, I actually went down to Lexus Creek. I hitchhiked down to Lexus Creek and talked to the RCMP about it. And he agreed to me. He was a, he was a great constable. He came up uh, and went and talked to the, a fellow. He was a German that was doing some trapping up there and had threatened me. So he had a talk with a German fellow, but I knew at that point that my time up there was drawing to a close. And then I got word that the Cattlemen's Association had decided that they would like my 160 acres in the Kalina Kalina Valley for grazing land. And so uh, I lost the lease, and so I... I came back down to the coast. Okay. And so just to get the timeline straight, and the hitchhiking was before that, or the hitchhiking happened after that? Both sides. Both sides of that? Both sides, yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks for sharing all that. I think I think there's like obviously so many more stories in that, but I, I actually want to uh, get into... Um, 
Actually, sorry, before I change subjects abruptly, is there anything else that you want to say about that time? Because I no, kind of... it was all good times. <laughs> I learned a lot. I really enjoyed myself. Right on. Yeah. Right on. Yeah, I want to talk about building. And, you know, you mentioned how you've been building things your whole life from cabinets to furniture to houses. And maybe we could spend some time talking about that and your career as a builder and how that first began for you, I guess, and then how it's uh, evolved since your time on Pender Island. Well, the best times and memories I have of uh, with my dad was was in the shop building stuff. Uh, it was the only time we got to be um, by ourselves, and he would teach me different tricks about woodworking. So that was good times. And then woodworking in high school, I got a scholarship for furniture making. And then it just seemed when I was, when I was hitchhiking, if I'd run out of money. There is always somebody that needed something done, either fixing a barn, building a garage. The best uh, opportunities in, in California were, was making redwood hot tubs or decks. So that's how I supplemented it. And then uh, I was hanging out with some friends in San Jose when they were tearing down. I might have these mixed up, but I think it was the Imperial Valley that all the orchards were in. And then they decided to move that over to the next valley. So at that point, the bulldozers came in and took out all the orchards. And then they would start bringing subdivisions. So we got work, uh, piecemeal work, framing houses in these subdivisions. So that's essentially when I learned and where I learned how to frame houses. So it was, uh, in most cases, it was an economic necessity. But other times, I've just always enjoyed building. As I got older, um, in the last decade or so, the shine has sort of come off it because there's so many regulations and so many things that you have to do in order to build as far as to get permission and the fees and the requirements and the codes and everything just gets so complicated that you spend half your time sitting in an office filling out papers and forms and paying bills as you do swinging a hammer with the guys on the job site. So that's probably what more than anything encouraged me to uh, to stop work. Okay. But before you were encouraged to stop work through all these uh, regulations and red tape, let's say. But uh, so w when you first moved to the island, you said that, uh, you know, coming here as a contractor, how did that uh, unfold for maybe the first decade, let's say through the 80s, like doing building on uh, on the island? How how was that? And how did it wind up shifting and evolving maybe through the decades a little bit, if you can uh, explain that to people? Because I'm kind of fascinated by this. I don't think I've had a builder per se on the island necessarily talk about the transition of... Of how building has evolved over the last 40 years through the island, but I'm curious to hear. Well, I, my first job was with uh, Ted Barman and Bill Hansen with Salish Construction. Um, Percy Melville was also building on the island. Per Fisker was building on the island. Uh, and there's a couple of other guys that were also going, but they were primarily smaller homes uh, scattered all over. I mean, the first time I came to Magic Lake and the first job I had, I came, I drove into Magic Lake and I couldn't find where the job site was. I, I must have spent over half an hour driving around trying to find the damn place. And I came to the conclusion that the reason so many people live here is because they drove in here and couldn't get there, couldn't find the way out. So, uh, uh, but they were really good to me. And then uh, in 1985, um, I had a, uh, an accident on the job site, which really impacted my back and has been with me ever since. But at that point, I had decided that I wanted to, to work on my own. 
And so I started up South Island Woodworks, which was named because I wanted to build boats. But um, that was pretty tough <laughs> to work on boats on this island, pretty limited materials and a pretty limited client base. So uh, I started just doing renovations. And then as I, I think the first full house I built was with Charlie Boyd next to my property. And uh, we built that one together. And then from then on, the phone just started ringing. There's always, I, I've been really lucky because I don't think there's been a day since I've been on Pender Island that I haven't been able to work. I've always said that you can, you, you'll spend years building a reputation on this island and you'll lose it in a week. So you have to be really careful. And two of the, uh, the best pieces of advice I got from a neighbor of mine was that show up on time. And if you can't, then phone and let people know. I've always kept that close to heart, even though I have not always followed that advice. But I would give that to any, any person that wants to find work on this island is be on time and have the courtesy to call someone if you are not going to show up when you told them they would. Just general good life advice. It is, it is. Whether, whether you're doing it for a job or, or just... Or an interview. Or an interview. <laughs> or a friend or anything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Show up on time or let them know you're not going to be able yeah. to be there on time. But, uh, okay, so you, you the first person that you built houses with, you said was Charlie Boyd. Or the first house you built was with Charlie uh, When I went on my own. Yeah. Okay. All right. And so you went on your own. And, and so as, as you were had your own business, South Island Woodworks, did you start with smaller homes? building bigger homes or back and forth, everything in between? How did that wind up going? Yeah, homes were never really that big. I, I think the bigger homes started coming in probably around, oh, maybe, probably in the 2000s. I don't think the homes were that were that big. And I don't want to insult anyone here, but I, I found that people don't build houses as much as... Uh, almost monuments to wealth. Uh, the, the money that people are putting into houses, the size of the houses, that has dramatically changed. Um, it's certainly changed our rural character of the island. It has changed the flavor of the island as far as its character. And, and also, it, there's going to be an impact to the landscape as far as the views are concerned. So, yeah, I would say in, in house construction, that has been the biggest change and the biggest surprise to me is the amount of money that people are putting into building a house now. I think that um, unintentionally, the unintended consequences of that is that it does raise property values. It does raise the assessments of properties. And somewhere along the line, that is going to have a bearing on affordability of housing. It also uh, creates opportunity for looking at housing as an investment. And that will and has already uh, impact younger families who can't afford to buy their own home or afford to live here because it also drives up the cost of living. Sure. Yeah, it seems like it's a it's a huge problem in many places throughout Canada right now. In 2019, we're doing this. And I, I think that uh, just recently, I've noticed on the island in the last year, in particular, that there's been a significant change in terms of housing prices seem to have spiked again. And um, affordability is difficult. Rental places are always an issue. Rent prices have gone through the roof in the last few years. And uh, yeah, it's certainly having, there is an impact that's definitely taking place on the island that's taking away from yeah people with lower incomes to live here, it seems like. For yeah. Sure. And, a, and a community needs 
all age groups and all income groups. And I think if we start losing younger people, younger families, then our community will suffer. Our whole sense of community will suffer. We mm-hmm. need them. We need people. We need them in our fire departments. We need them in the ambulances. We need them in other services. And we just need their energy. We just, we just need their vibrancy because uh, the older we get, the more settled in our ways, the more we don't like to change. And uh, we need someone to kind of kick us in the ass every once in a while and say, no, no, let's, let's, let's try this. Let's get moving here. Let's pick it up. For sure. I just want to uh, lead into the second traditional question here, which uh, is who's helped you on Pender Island? And uh, the reason I asked this is because I, I thought this will be a good idea to ask people because they're going to talk about themselves for an hour. So it'll be good to divert this on to uh, someone else and name other people. But as I've done one podcast after another, I've realized, holy smokes, everybody seems to have... Uh, too many people to list, right? And and uh, there's a tentativeness about singling out certain people because they don't want to miss out uh, on any names. But um, I'm just curious uh, with that disclaimer about uh, who would you specifically mention as to uh, people that have really helped you along the way from the time you've been here on uh, Pender Island. Well, if I was really smart, I'd say Chris Wakalak was the first. What are you talking about? What's that? <laughs> it's not even true. Most of the people that helped me the most in my early years have all left the island or have died. Uh, they're the old timers. Um, but they, you know, the advice that they gave me, still I still listen to, I still hear. Um, even in my role as trustee, I had advice from a, a wonderful old woman that whose family had been on South Pender for generations. And she took me aside and told me not to forget the people that created the community that allowed us to move to and enjoy. And I've never forgotten that bit of advice. And I think that is crucial. And even in my decision-making as a trustee, I, I keep that in mind. Change is going to come. It's inevitable and, and necessary. But... There is an essence to our character in this community, and that essence was created and nurtured by the people that came before us. And out of respect and out of just acknowledging their memory, I think it's incredibly important not to let that go and always keep it in mind. So that's what I try and do. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, maybe for some people who have been on the island for a while, what are some of the names of the people that you like to specifically mention who maybe are, are no longer living or no longer here as well, but uh, some of the uh, the old school names of uh, people that helped you? Well, um, certainly Vicki Gillespie, because without her kindness, I wouldn't be here. There was uh, Joy McCautry. Um, there was, uh, boy, the, the Christies, Derek and Jigs were wonderful friends to me. There's Russ Pomahack, who's still on Gallon Point Road. Um, his neighbor, Ken. There was Charlie and Mary Johnson uh, down the road that left a number of years ago. The Penders, the Henshaws, Ann, Len, uh, John Henshaw. Uh, there's just just a bunch of old guys, and I, I know I've left some out. Earl Hastings was, was a great old guy to uh, sit back and chat to for any length of time yeah there was there were so many of them so many of them i uh the younger guys that i sort of grew up and worked with uh such as ronnie henshaw and brent marston kevin marston and chuck burgess have worked with me for 
years, well over 20 years. They're almost more my brothers than, than my own brothers. Um, they know me inside out, and uh, we've, we've gone through every experience imaginable on a job site. Uh, so there's there's always been the guys that have helped me out in the sub-trades. There's always been guys that have served me well at the lumberyard, um, in the stores. Um, it's a pretty remarkable community, as most small communities are, when, when people have a chance to live long enough together that they can, they can grow and evolve together. Cool. That's a long list of people right there. That's pretty amazing and impressive. And uh, I, I always love hearing the answer to this question because it seems as if everybody has uh, so many people that they want to uh, acknowledge. And it's really helped give a clear picture to me about how supportive this island is that before doing this podcast, I didn't even know. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know. I think it's an amazing thing to have people put words to uh, the kind of help that they received on the island and naming people. And thanks for naming names of a uh, number of people that I, I don't know because they're before my time. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm sure some people are going to be listening to this, uh, remembering some old names. And and cursing me for not mentioning them, I'm sure. And I, I, I don't mean to leave anybody out. <laughs> I mean, one of the guys that I recall that had an impact on me right off the start was Don Sutherland, who was, who was a doctor on the island. And when I went in to see him, he introduced himself as Don, not doctor. He said, my name is Don, and I'm here to entertain you until, you're, until nature takes its course. And I thought, this is a doctor I can live with. And uh, Don unfortunately left uh, the island, but he did go to the UN. And uh, is, I'm not sure if he's still with the UN, but he was a pretty high-ranking official with the AIDS movement in, in the UN. So he really was a remarkable man and had a great career in the medical field. Okay. If, there, if there's anybody else you want to mention later, feel free. I'm just going to uh, uh, move into a question where I'm going to ask you, what do you do in your spare time? What have you been doing in your spare time uh, since you've been on Pender? What uh, what do you do for fun? I travel. I still travel. My first wife uh, and I split up 20 years ago. And uh, at 49, when that happens, you realize that your future has suddenly collapsed because you always relate to your future as as being twinned. You're, you're with someone. And so when that person leaves your life, then uh, you're kind of left with a hole and, and what the hell am I going to do? So my decision was that I would semi-retire and that I would pull out the things that I wanted to do that I wanted to do be- while I still had the health and the ability to do it. One was to play hockey because I never played hockey or skated. The second was to start climbing mountains. The third one uh, I haven't done, that was to go back and relearn uh, guitar. Um, but I did start playing hockey uh, when I was 55. I bought a pair of skates and a stick and um, spent a lot of money on power skating and hockey skills, which didn't seem to help much. Um, but I've been playing for 15 years with a great bunch of guys. So Tuesdays and uh, Fridays are hockey days. And uh, that has that group on Pender Island has grown exponentially over the last... 10 years and it's really quite a remarkable bunch bunch of guys of different age groups and different skill levels um but the social aspect of that game is undeniable um i did i uh, started out uh, traveling um i went up with uh, ian elliott and uh marie burgess on a hike up to baker 
which is only 10,000 feet. So it was, a, it was a nice, easy hike up to the top of the hill. But at least it gave me a sense um, that it was a place I liked. It's, it's an incredible environment out there. You feel quite humble and quite small. It's austere. And then uh, uh, from there, I went down and hiked some of the other hills and, and, and got up to 14,000 feet at Rainier. And looked at some other hills, but there really isn't much bigger than that on North America. There's a lot of them around 14,000 in Colorado. But if you want to go higher, you have to go, you have to leave Canada. So then I started going down to Peru. And uh, we um, did a lot of hiking and a bit of climbing down there. Um, nothing uh, extraordinarily challenging or technical but but enough to to give you a taste and then we uh from there i went to nepal twice and hiked uh one up to the annapurna circuit and the uh kumu up around uh everest base camp and was looking to um try and get up a little higher there but um weather patterns and stuff like that and a number of other factors just didn't fall into place uh, so that that has ended now uh, my last trip it was uh, it was kind of a rough trip, and I, I had to come to the conclusion that, that it really wasn't as enjoyable as I once thought it was. And uh, I had been so damn cold for so long after being sick, um, because it's never a question of if you're going to get sick. It's just a question of when and for how long when you're in some of these countries. But I, uh, I just couldn't warm up, and uh, that has affected me even today. I never felt the cold ever in my life until after that experience. And now I find that if, I, if I'm if i outside in the cold, it, it affects me much more than it used to. So that's taken the, the, the fun time out of climbing. So that's that's gone by the wayside. So right now um, I'm fortunate to, to be married to Marnie and we spend a lot of time just traveling out in warmer, more comfortable places. <laughs> Smart move. And, and working, in, uh, working in the garden. So we've, we've basically got a, a great home life and we really enjoy our property. All right. Well, that's pretty, you know, it's interesting when people talk about, it's like, oh yeah, I just uh, went up uh, 14,000 feet and and that's it. But th- that that's hard to do. It's not an easy thing. Like, you know, you say it's not technical, but it's it takes a lot of energy. It takes yeah. a lot of will to to get to the top. Uh, yes, it's, it, you certainly have to be prepared for it physically. Um, it's very difficult to do that at sea level because everything changes at altitude. When you start running out of oxygen, um, everything changes from just from the ability to to keep up your energy as far as your muscle strength, but also you start making stupid decisions, and that's where a lot of accidents happen. But it all depends on the route. I mean, there are mountains that you can you can stroll up and get to that altitude. So it's not necessarily the route. Um, it is more fun if the route is a little more challenging. But not everybody, uh, myself included, uh, wants to hang off a rope on a sheer cliff for, for two days. It's just not something I'm particularly thrilled about at my age, maybe when I was younger, but not now. Um, so I've never gone that way. I've just, I've just taken routes that I, that are tough enough, but, but comfortable enough. And, and I always told my wife and my kids that the summit would always, would only be one place to turn around. Not my final destination. My final destination would be the parking lot so that I'd make sure I got home. Well said. I guess it's important to go in with that uh, mental intent as well, too, visualizing coming down safe and everything. The only thing that gets you up a hill is determination. You really got to want to do it. If you don't have that, you're not going to make it because it's not comfortable. I think even at 14,000 feet, you can be well fed, be warm, 
be comfortable and you'll still die because there's not enough oxygen even at that altitude for the cells to split and heal themselves. So if you get sick or you cut yourself, the body won't heal. So you will simply degrade until eventually you die. So it's not uh, it's not a, an environment where anything lives or can live because of that. But you do f find a lot out about yourself. And I've always... I've always learned a great deal about myself and who I am in more dangerous situations than I have in comfortable and safe decisions. And and that's part of the appeal, I think, that I find. Yeah, I don't know if this is a question you can put words to or answer, but what have you found out about yourself specifically through those experiences? I'm really stubborn. Um, I am determined, but I'm not. I'm not stupid. Uh, in the sense that the goal has to be met if the cost of that goal is going to cause injury or harm. And uh, you can use that not only in your own life, but even as a trustee, when you're dealing with issues that confront your community. You don't want to take the community somewhere that is going to cause so much distress and anxiety that the goal is, is just not worthy of it. It's just not worth it. So you want to try and find a direction that you can attain a goal that may be uncomfortable, may be challenging, but you know it's not going to cause irreversible harm or bad feelings or all that sort of stuff. I mean, you're not going to, you're not going to avoid controversy and you're not going to avoid criticism, but um, you can rationalize your decision. You can move it in a direction where even if people disagree with you, they won't disagree with the fact that you've rationalized it and explained why you're going there. Mm. And I think that's an aspect of, of leadership that we have probably lost within the world. And I'm not saying I'm a leader by any means, but that is the kind of leadership that I look to in politicians and uh, leaders of our country that I think is we've lost. But that's a whole other subject. Oh no! Well, a boring I, one of that. I don't think it's boring at all. I, just to just to clarify, you, you mean that in terms of giving clear definition and direction and rationalizing why it is you're coming to a, a certain decision? Is that what you're saying that we you feel like we've lost? Uh, yeah, I think there's too many contradictions going on in on in the political uh, realm right now. If we are going to talk about uh, climate change emergencies, for instance, uh, we can't do that unless we're prepared to sacrifice something. We're not going to achieve any goals in reducing CO2 if we don't start making some tough decisions with fossil fuels and how we change our the way we practice our economy in order to, to reach those goals. You can't, every time we come up to a point where we have a choice to make, we can't always continually fall back on the status quo. We can't always go back to how we did things in the past. That, to me, is the very definition of insanity. You're, you're trying to achieve different ends by the same effort, and it doesn't work. It can't work. So we have to look at different alternatives. And no matter how tough that is, if someone is prepared to provide the rationale for going there and why we're doing it, then I think people are prepared to make those sacrifices. But I don't think people are prepared to make those sacrifices 
if we keep changing our minds because then it makes no sense to them. Mm. Interesting. Just to get back to something that you said that I thought was quite poignant is that you, you said that what you learned about yourself through the experiences of hiking is that you were determined, stubborn, but also realizing that you're not going to risk and jeopardize your safety for the sake of the goal. And uh, it's interesting because those those things seem as if they're in opposition to each other, right? That being stubborn and determined it w- would typically not be the characteristics of somebody who would also know when to say when and be like, holy smokes, <laughs> I think I think I'm risking my life a little too much here and I know I need to pull back in this. And I, I think that just because you're determined and stubborn doesn't mean that you can't have some... Uh, flexibility. Flexibility. Compromise. Self-awareness yeah. and compromise and just the ability to know that, okay, well, you know what? Maybe this isn't working. Yeah, maybe mm-hmm. we need to put the brakes on this. But thanks for sharing that. That's uh, mm-hmm. that's interesting. I'm still rattling that around my mind and thinking, oh, that's so great. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I feel like I've learned something here from you. Um, whoops. <laughs> don't say whoops. Careful. <laughs> uh, maybe to bring this around full circle, because... You mentioned about sorting through some items that uh, belonged to your parents. And I'm not actually sure about this, but are both your parents deceased? Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. People's parents are part of the stories that brought them here. And uh, I don't know if you'd like to spend some time maybe uh, remembering your parents and talking about your parents a little bit and telling us a little bit about uh, about your mom and dad. Ah, well, my dad was born in Vancouver. His father died, well, came over to... Well, actually, that's a, it's kind of an interesting story. My grandfather... Uh, I never met any of my grandfathers. My grandfather went to Norway, to a small town in Norway, and introduced to my grandmother. It was the first time that my grandmother met this man. Uh, She was introduced to him. He was an architect in Edinburgh. And she was informed that he would be her husband. The second time she saw him, they were engaged and married. And they left together, went to Edinburgh, and then came to Vancouver, where he practiced architecture. He was one of the people that designed the Lionsgate Bridge, although he did not like the line figures at the head of the bridge because he thought they were too British. And uh, he also designed the Burrard Street Bridge. What he asked for in the Burrard Street Bridge is that it have two levels one for trains and the other for automobiles because he thought the automobile was going to be fairly popular. They only put on the one for the train. And it is the oldest bridge in North America that carries the amount of traffic that it does on a daily basis. So the guy obviously knew what he was doing. Unfortunately, the dirty 30s came along and he lost his shirt. So my grandmother and my father and my aunt, his sister, older sister, they were left without an income. So my aunt went to work, got out of UBC and went to work um, for the government in social services. And my father, uh, at a fairly young age, packed it up and went up to Stewart Lake and went mining uh, to send money back. And then the war hit. And so he joined the army, the Scottish. And he went through the war and during that time met a nurse in uh, London, England, who uh, sparked and uh, decided to marry. So my mother and father got married in England, and after the war came to Canada, 
as a, a common story, I'm sure. So they uh, they ended up in Vancouver, living at my grandmother's, and then until the jobs uh, confirmed itself, um, my mother was pregnant with my older brother on her way over. So she went into, uh, I think she went into her stateroom on the ferry and uh, stayed there until they hit Halifax. She was sick as a dog, she said, and then got on a train that seemed to be endless and just went on for days coming across this big, long, vast country. And she could not conceive of the distances coming from coming from England. Anyway, so they moved to Port Alberni, um, and that's where I was born. My father started teaching there. So my father, was uh, he really enjoyed the military. But along with it, he also, I think he enjoyed the respect and the prestige of being an officer, and he also enjoyed the authority. He exercised that authority in the household as well, uh, which <laughs> you, um, I really did not accept or enjoy. So we we had a pretty tough time. We didn't have much of a relationship. We fought on a fairly regular basis. And in the process of that, of course, he would he would lose his temper and give us the wax and all that sort of stuff, which was unfortunately common back then. But my mother was the anchor. She was the glue. She held us together. She was I would have loved that woman even if she wasn't my mother. She was just uh, an incredible person. And just, uh, she taught us common sense. My father was a very smart man. So he gave us all the smarts and my mom gave us the common sense. And uh, what I also learned from my father was honesty, kindness, generosity, uh, because the experiences he had in the war and going through Holland at the time of their liberation, he saw what the Germans had done to the Dutch. And that had a huge effect upon him. And so uh, nobody was ever turned away from our door. Nobody ever was looking for food, was never turned away hungry. He, it was just uh, part of his DNA after that. And then when I started traveling and, and moved out, particularly when I was up homesteading, my father and I started uh, our relationship through letters, sort of healing up some of the wounds and, and covering some of the the rugged rivers that we had been floating down. So we ended up becoming very good friends. I went over to my grandmother one day and said, I need you to talk and tell me about who this guy is that I've been living with for 25 years that I don't like very much. And she looked at me and said, I'm surprised it took you so long. I remember those very words that she said. And she sat down and told me that about my father's relationship with my grandfather and how tough that was and how my father had to give up his own life in order to take on his responsibility to look after his family. And then he joined the war and had to take on the responsibility of looking after his country. And then he got a family and he gave up his life in order to fulfill his responsibility of bringing up a family. So I started to realize then that if I looked at my father, not through the eyes of the super guy called dad, that could tie the shoes and could sing the songs and know all the words to the alpha, uh, letters to the alphabet, etc. But just looked at him a person. I got a different view. I got a different appreciation for him as a human. And when I saw that and realized that probably one of the things that he was angry about was that he, he really never had a life of his own. And I was fortunate enough that I made sure that I always had my life. But that came at some cost to him. So when I 
kind of got to grips with that, then I could look at him and understand that regardless of his behavior towards me, uh, I knew that he was coming from a place of love. And once you recognize that, forgiveness is close at hand. So my father and I fortunately became very close at that time in our life. And uh, we remained so until his death in his mid-90s. Um, my mother and I were always, have always been close. So they are just who I am today. And, uh, well, yeah, I was just, I was lucky. I mean, I've been lucky all my life. I mean, there's an old saying, you know, you fall in a bucket of shit and come out smelling like a rose. That pretty much defines my life right there. I have been incredibly fortunate. And I, uh, there's not too much I'd change about it. Wow. Well, I, I think part of feeling like that way, it's, it's, uh, it's how you interpret your life as well, too. That, uh, that's probably made a choice to interpret it that way, or that's just part of your makeup to see it that way, right? Mm -hmm. But that's an incredibly wonderful, detailed, articulate, beautiful description of uh, getting to understand your father better through really digging in and uh, spending some time and, and looking a little bit deeper and yeah, putting some care and attention into a relationship with, with them through different periods of your life. Thank you for sharing that. That's really, really fantastic. W what was your father's first name? Uh, Gordon. Everybody knew him as Stuart, though. It was Gordon Stewart. Gordon Stewart. Yeah. And, uh, and my mom was uh, Cicely Beatrice, but everybody called her Lynn. Cicely Beatrice. Beatrice, yeah. Beautiful that's, name. That's classic British, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Little small town. She had nine brothers and three sisters. Whoa. She had uh, one, uh, her father, of course, and then a stepdad. And I think all the uh, one of her sisters moved to Toronto. And I think the rest of the family probably still live within five miles of where they were born, which is another typical English story. They don't move around much, whereas, mm. we, whereas we do. There's places to roam yeah. for us here. Highways to travel. Yeah. Cars to pick us up with people <laughs> pulling guns on us and be like, all right, all right, another gun. I know. I'll get in. I know you're packing. <laughs> It's hilarious. But uh, I think I'm going to start to wind this down now, but we, it doesn't have to be like uh, super quick. But before we start the wind down, is there any particular aspect of your life that you think you might want to uh, touch on or share or something that we've missed that you, you feel like discussing right now? No, no, I've, uh, I've done a number of things. I've been, I've been pretty impulsive all my life. So I really haven't had a, a set plan or a goal. I just sort of, if something comes along, I jump at it. Um, there's a couple of the things that I, I suppose I have some regret about, um, only ad adventure-wise. Uh, a good friend of mine met a fellow named George Dyson who lived in Belcara, and his father was a nuclear physicist who was designing spacecraft, and uh, his mother was a world-renowned mathematician. And uh, But George decided that he was going to um, design kayaks or badarkas fashioned after the Inuit. And uh, we'd go over to Belcara and help him build these things out of aluminum tubing and lash them together so the joints were flexible. And he would cover them with a, a fiberglass cloth. And he decided that he would try these out by taking them up to Alaska. And I was supposed to go on the trip and uh, I turned that down in order to to go to California. And uh, that's always been something that if I, I think if I had to do over again, I would probably 
I probably would have gone on that trip because that was a pretty remarkable voyage. I'm pretty unique. Yeah. Well, so he told you about it later. He described how it went down. Like, what uh, did he hear about it? Or Oh, yeah. Yeah, my friends are rubbing it in for years. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> rubbing it in for years? Yeah, yeah. You really missed out on that one, Steve. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hilarious. Well... Thanks very much for coming in. Hey, my pleasure. My but pleasure. This is uh, this has been remarkable. And it just maybe so people know as well, too. Like, you and I don't really know each other very well at all. We went not out yet. for... We're not there. yet. We're getting there. <laughs> but when I asked you to do this a few weeks back, you suggested we go out for a coffee. So we went for a coffee uh, last week at the bakery and just talked for a little over an hour maybe and uh, it was a wonderful experience and uh yeah it's it's a it's a real pleasure to get to meet you and to get to know you and i hope we get to know each other better awesome thanks man all right well to honor that interview i decided i would come down to gallon point so gallon point is located on the very south end of the south island and it is a incredibly remarkable spot. It's to me like nowhere else on the island and it opens up into a wide expanse and you can really feel the aliveness of the island here. To me, this is the most wild place on the island. And I decided to come down here because Steve mentioned it during the interview as one of the first places he came across and I thought I'd do something that I've never done before and that's come down here when it's dark out. So to give honor to the season that we're in right now, we're in December and there's a lot of darkness out and I came down here and I've been here for about half an hour now, walking along the shoreline, listening to the different sounds of the waves crashing in. I hope you can hear them in the background there. And right now I'm just huddled in behind a blackberry bush, trying to shield myself from the wind a little bit here. So once again, thank you to Steve for doing that interview. And before I sign off, I just want to let people know about a new project I'm working on, which is titled My Audio Memoir. So this is a paid service that I am doing for people that would like to have a private recording of themselves or of a loved one. What I intend on doing is having pre-interviews with individuals to map out and shape the stories of their lives that they'd like to tell and have multiple recording sessions with the individual to wind up having a final product of one, three, seven, eleven hours, whatever it is that you'd like to do. And it'll be edited for clarity and continuity and making the speaker sound as good as possible and have as a keepsake for future generations to hear of your life experiences or for you to have as a keepsake of a grandparent's or a parent's life experience. If you'd like to know more about this, you can find out more by contacting me at myaudiomemoir at outlook.com. That's M Y A U. D-I-O-M-E-M-O-I-R at Outlook.com. If you send me a quick email, I can tell you some more information about that. If you have any questions, that's it for that. But before I go, I'm going to say thank you to Tarmigan for helping to sponsor this podcast. Thank you to Ben McConkie for doing the music. And thank you for listening. Until next time.